0: Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strank. On this podcast, we explore pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic science. We've talked before on the show about molecular pathology and molecular diagnostics. And one of the main tools used in molecular pathology applied to cancer treatment is companion diagnostics. My guest today is Barbara Day. Barbara is an education specialist in companion diagnostics. And today on the show, we're going to talk about how she started out in the laboratory as a phlebotomist, then a medical technologist, and eventually into management. And then we'll talk about her current role in companion diagnostics. All right, here's Barbara Day. You started out as a phlebotomist. I did. Okay. I, I want to talk about that a little bit. How, how was it that you got into that field?
1: Totally by accident. Um, I was in college. I probably was a late, maybe sophomore, and a friend of mine had gotten a job as an evening shift phlebotomist at a very small hospital right outside our college campus, and they were looking for a part-time phleb on the weekends, and she said to me, why don't you apply? I said, I don't know how to draw blood. She says, oh, they'll teach you. So I applied. I got the job. They taught me how to draw blood, and then until I went to med tech school, I worked every weekend and probably more days in the summer. At mm-hmm. this little hospital lab, drawing inpatients and outpatients, and even doing some lab assistant work. It was really, really great, and really great preparation to get into this field.
0: Yeah, that's a nice, um, that's a way to get your foot in the door, really. That's, mm-hmm. and it's a, yeah, it's a great opportunity. How, how long was the training for, for that?
1: A day. <laughs> yeah, this oh. was in the 80s, so this was back in the days of, you know, watch one, do one, teach one. And pretty uh, okay. much, you. I watched... Two And the tech that I was working with said, okay, your turn. I had no idea what I was doing. And remember, no safety devices, no gloves. Uh, we were still using glass tubes, uh, single sample needles. We used to wash out our barrels after that, you know, we because they would get blood in them because they were single sample needles. Uh-huh. It was the 80s. And uh, it, was, it was interesting. And I really struggled at first because there is a technique. And one of the techs took me out in the hallway and There was a gurney there, and she made me continue to stick and change tubes on the gurney, and that's really how I learned, and then the rest was just practice, and I actually became a pretty good phlebotomist in my day. Not anymore, but then I was.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. It's not
1: like riding a bike. You do forget this one.
0: Yeah, I bet. I bet. I, I imagine they didn't have, like, I think nowadays you have to have a certain number of sticks before you're allowed to go. Yeah. It wasn't like yeah, that then,
1: it wasn't huh? like that then. No, it, this was 1981, so it was, uh, you know, there it was just a different world then.
0: Yeah, that's for <laughs> sure. It really was. Uh huh. Okay, so you you said you you got into this by accident, so you didn't really uh, intend to have a, a lab career.
1: I did not. Right? I actually started in gasp nursing. I went to nursing school. I know, I know, right? And I was there for a year and I realized that I really didn't like it. I I had I didn't like the whole total patient contact. I was 17 when I went. I thought maybe that had something to do with it, but after a year, I just it wasn't what I wanted to do. So I left and went to local state college and majored in biology with absolutely no intention of going into the lab field. I had looked at it in high school. But not, you know, my my guidance counselor was like, oh, you don't want to do that. All you're going to do is look at a microscope and stand around all day. Mm-hmm. OK, so I was really didn't know what I wanted to do when I went to college. I was in bio and, you know, they, my very first bio class, the school that I went to had a very big med tech program. And my first bio class, there were 400 people, not 440 people in it. And of those 40 people, probably 38 of them were med tech majors.
2: Oh wow! And
1: yeah, there there was it was a very big, and that was only one class. There was probably another 38 in another class, and I wasn't one of them. Um, but it was you know was one of those things where the professor said, "Look to your right, look to your left; those people won't be in this course in in three years," and they weren't. We ended up graduating only 10 in the course, and I was one of them. Okay. And that was my phlebotomy experience. Is what led me to realize that I actually liked the lab and could see myself doing this um in my in my career, I've done a lot of presentations to schools, and my tagline is, We're the field that wants to help you, but we don't want to touch you. And uh, that's kind of what I always said with med tech, and that was worked okay. for me, which nursing didn't because I didn't want to touch patients.
0: Uh-huh. That's so funny. I have a very similar, at least beginning because I was a bio major too. Mm-hmm. And you know, I got out of college and couldn't find a job and ended up going back. To, I enrolled in a phlebotomy program, and although I never, I never finished it because during that time I got a job as a lab assistant in a histology department,
1: mm-hmm. and
0: then went on to become a histologist and then a PA. But mm-hmm. so it was a, it's it's exact, almost yeah. exact same beginning. That's interesting.
1: Yeah. Well, it's, it's a good like I even go to med tech school. My phlebotomy training was so essential because I really wasn't afraid and I knew what I was getting into. So many of my cohorts in school thought they were getting into research. Yeah. You know, and it's, it's not. It's it's a it's a job. It's a day. you. It's routine. You have routines. You have some that aren't routine, but it, it wasn't research at all. And a lot of people were very disappointed. And I felt that being able to do what I did really gave me. A good background.
0: Yeah, that's such valuable experience. I mean, a lot of Mm -hmm. people say that, you know, if you're going to, if you think about a lab career, you really should get in there and shadow for a day or something like that. And, and like you said, know what you're getting into.
1: Right. Right.
0: Okay. So then you're in the lab, you're a phlebotomist. And that's, is that what inspired you then to? I mean, it was called med tech at the time.
1: It was med tech. Yeah. We weren't clinical laboratory scientists. I still have an MTA, SCP. certification. The, yeah, so I really worked with some really wonderful techs at this little hospital that were very patient. And they, you know, once I decided that I think maybe I'm going to go into med tech, they really went through everything. And I was, I was able to do some lab assistant work and really learn how to do a lot of things prior to even getting into med tech school. So that was really that was my my background. That was my basis. And then back in the day and, you know, I graduated college in 84. So we had what was called the the computer match. So at the time, Pittsburgh, I'm from Pittsburgh. So we had about there was probably seven med tech schools in the area and you got matched with whatever school you wanted. So you picked your top three. They picked their top three and you got matched with, you know, tried to get matched with one of those. Oh, okay. A lot different now when there's not that many schools, but it was it was very competitive at the time. We had to have a three point five average in our in our sciences. Um, And it was a three year program basically in college, plus one year in med tech school. So it was a really competitive field back then. It, It has it's it's gone away since then, which is a shame. But it was very competitive. And, you know, I was able to get into what was considered my number one choice. And I got a great background.
0: Yeah that that's very very different than the way it is now. There's yeah. you know they're they're hurting for students now.
1: They're well they're hurting for schools. Yeah. We don't and, have any schools in the area except an MLT program now.
0: Oh really? Wow. Yeah. Okay. You know going through the the medtech program did you enjoy it right away or did you feel like I'm not sure about this or a little of both?
1: No, I loved it right away. It was what I was meant to do. Okay. Yeah, I really do think that it was what I, I liked everything about it. Now, there are some departments I liked less than I liked others. I really liked blood bank. That was my favorite. I can't tell you that I like micro. Mm, um, I've okay. even done a little bit in histo that I liked. You know, working at small hospitals gave you that opportunity. And that's what I did as a tech. for oh, sure. worked in a smaller hospital.
0: Okay. What was it about blood bank that you really liked?
1: It's like a puzzle. And it's manual. And I like I like the manual more than the automated.
0: Mm, okay
1: but it was a big puzzle i like the puzzle and i really think in blood bank you're really more of the care team than you are in the other parts of the lab
0: okay that makes sense yeah okay now so so then you're working as a med tech did you have like what i'm trying to get is, you went on to, to get a master's degree in management i did okay now did you have management roles and i did then decide okay so then you decided i need better skills or additional skills. And that's why you went to get the master's degree or was it the other way around?
1: It was, it was, it's kind of twofold. I love education. I would be in school all the time if I could be. So. Really? Oh, I do. I love education. I would be in school all the time. That would be my, if I was rich, I would be a professional student.
0: Professional student. Okay.
1: (laughs) I would. Uh, So I decided to get a master's degree because I wanted to move up. You know, I had a plan from when I started this that I wanted to be in lab management And I wanted to get as many tools in my, you know, tool chest that I could. And I was working as a manager at a centralized transfusion service at the time. And it just felt like it should be something that I do in order to even move out of that because I wanted to be a manager in a hospital, not just in a transfusion service. So I looked at a lot of colleges and, you know, I was already 40 years old when I decided to get my master's. And I didn't want to take. GREs or GMATs, Mm -hmm. and I happened to be driving to work and a a college, Carlo University, came on the radio and they said, oh, we don't have a GMAT requirement. So I contacted them and they were very, they really worked well with, it used to be a women's college, they really worked well with working women that wanted to go back to school. And um, their program was easily navigatable to be able to do it while you worked. Okay, so it was good, and that's why I went into. Now I didn't get an MBA, unfortunately, but I do have a degree in in management.
0: I see. Okay, do you happen to know like what's the difference between those two?
1: I think it's a little bit more finance in an MBA, which I probably didn't. I had some. They did change the program to an MBA, with a, you had to take two more classes. But I didn't do it at the time, and I'm sorry I didn't.
0: So you mentioned the, the management roles, and you actually said, talked about transfusion a little bit there so you were you were a manager in transfusion at and you managed like several trauma yeah. centers yes all right so i'm curious about this because that sounds like very high stress
1: it was it and, and honestly if, if all my jobs that was probably my favorite work that i did
0: oh, really? because why, why I, like that? That,
1: I like that high stress i like the um being part of the care team the that trauma the adrenaline rush that you get with a trauma
0: mm, okay that makes yeah, sense. And,
1: yeah, and and it's interesting because if you work in a community hospital, and you get trauma, it's it's such a big deal. You know, it, it's you're always scurrying around. But when you work in a trauma center, it's so routine that you're just like a well oiled machine. It's it's amazing the difference.
0: Okay, can you go through like what was your role in that aspect?
1: So we were a fairly large um, centralized transfusion service, and we had a lot of hospitals. So my role, I actually started there as a assistant supervisor. And my role then was just to be the person in charge on the weekends. And then I moved up to man, to supervisor of evening shift and then to manager. And as a manager, I had four of our sites and I was responsible for the day-to-day operations at those sites. Okay. We had, we had a pretty... Big structure. So, as a manager, I was not the top of the food chain. There was still like an executive director, a director, and a VP above me. And they did most of the pure management functions like budgeting and finance. I didn't do any of that. Mine was simply day to day operations.
0: You know, so going into these management roles, did you enjoy, like you said, that you had intended to go into management mm-hmm. from the beginning? And when you got there, did you find that? it was what you expected?
1: It was more than I expected. And it's funny because I tell people this all the time is that when you're young and you think that you can do it better until you get into that role and you think, Oh my God, I don't know anything. (laughs)
0: Mm, Yeah.
1: (laughs) So it's, it's, it was more than I expected. And, and with every position that I took, it was, I learned so much more with everyone because they got bigger or more management or more director or more financial. So I learned I learned more and more. But the one thing that was always the same is the people part of it. And that's actually what I enjoyed most about being a manager. And I know that that's odd because most people don't like that part of it. But I loved managing people.
0: You went on to become a laboratory director. Mm -hmm. Uh, How how did that role come up for you?
1: Um, Again, it was kind of accidental. We had a, so I was now employed at a um, small IDN. And I was the manager of one of the hospitals, and we had during that time we had a lot of change in leadership at the COO and the CEO level. So at one point, they just did this whole restructure, and they asked me if I would be director. Oh,
0: yeah, just, just like out of the just blue, like that, like that, out of the blue, yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah,
1: yeah, really. It was, it was, it was an interesting. It was very interesting, and a little i was a little taken aback because i didn't expect it
0: uh-huh i see so then what was the what was the difference like the additional job duties from being a manager to being a director
1: so you go from tactical to t- to strategic so now i had to know about the budget even more than i did as a manager And now contracts were all in my wheelhouse and making sure that standardization, we were very big on trying to get everything standardized through the whole system. Uh So it was just became, I was, you know, basically the quarterback. And then I had people to, to tactically implement what we decided as a, as the manager and supervisor level.
0: I imagine there was quite a bit more meetings as well, right?
1: I I swear that I was, I I used to say that I think my name was just auto populated on all agendas and all meetings because I think I had, that's what my job used to be is I went to meetings. A lot of meetings.
0: Yeah, I believe that.
1: (laughs) A lot of meetings. But you know, one of the things that labs that they don't do well is we don't get a seat at the table. You you hear that so much. You got to get a seat at the table. And I made sure I had a seat at that table. Okay, That was my, that's, that, and I, it meant a lot of meetings, but at least if there was something that was going to impact the lab, they knew to involve me in it.
0: Mm -hmm. Now, how were you, you know, as the representative for the lab, how were you received at, at meetings like that?
1: Um, I think, well, I was asked to be on a lot of meetings, you know, like I sat on things like pharma, the pharmacy meetings, you know, P and T meetings. Um, mostly I was pretty well respected in that system, I think, and they, you know, I, I still believe that we're an ancillary department and we need to be, not be a roadblock. We need to be able to see what we can do to help whatever the strategic plan is to get there in whatever way that we can. And, you know, a a lot of times lab managers are like, no, we can't do that. I used to say like, okay, let's see how we can do it. And sometimes it would be a no because it would just be impossible. But a lot of the times I would work, we would come to a, a neutral ground and be able to work together.
0: You know, I think about like, you get this sort of, I don't know, mandate or whatever from kind of upper management. It's like, this is what we need to do. And and like you said, in the lab, it's like, well, you know, either we can or we can't, but do you ever, did you ever let like go, okay, we can do this, but these are the resources and these are the yeah. equipment and people that we need.
1: Yes. Yeah, we've had to do that quite a bit. This is, we can do this, but we need this to be able to do this.
0: Mm -hmm. And then they, what would they say? Like, oh, all right, here here you go. Well,
1: sometimes you would get that. Sometimes it would be, yeah, okay, then we're just not going to do it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Yeah, you know, when you work in small systems, you don't have that real big coffer of money out there. Right. So sometimes you have to figure out other ways to do things.
0: Okay, okay. Now, I've heard some people tell me that, you know the lab because it's behind the scenes a lot. We don't get, like you said, that coffer of money. We don't get a, the percentage that we probably deserve.
1: Yeah, I would say that you, we don't get as much because lab work itself is inexpensive, but the equipment is very expensive and. Mm-hmm. Staffing is expensive. And I would say if there's anything that we don't get, is we don't get knowledge that we need staff because nobody really knows what we do. And it's all these big instruments, and they think, well, all you need to do is just press a button. And it's more than that. And that's the challenge that you have because it's very easy to say that, you know, one of the things that was always said to me is, oh, you know, you have a lot of supervisors in the lab. But we were doing all of our own quality, all of our own accreditation work all of our own education, you know, whereas other parts as in nursing had departments to do that where we didn't. So I think that was one of the things that people don't really understand. And, you know, CAP guidelines are very restrictive and very, there's a lot of work behind that, more so than I think even a joint commission inspection for a hospital.
0: Yeah, I would would agree with that. Sure. You're right. A, A lot of people don't understand that you know, all of the quality control and quality assurance that we have to do in the lab. And just, you can't just get a test and start using it. There's Mm -hmm. a lot that, a lot of work that goes into bringing on a new test.
1: A lot of work. And there's a lot of, a lot of training involved and there's a lot of, it's just, you know, my boss was very, very good at my last role to explain to people about. She would, you know, she would bring the cap checklist and say, look, this is what my staff in the lab has to be accountable toward, which was good because, in, in general, most of the hospital doesn't realize that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You're absolutely right. This is the People of Pathology podcast with our guest, Barbara Day. We'll be right back. You've heard me talk about LabVine before. And this is an online learning platform for laboratory professionals where you can earn continuing education credit. And these are accredited by the Society of Medical Laboratory Technology of South Africa, as well as PACE in the U.S. and the Royal College of Pathologists in the U.K. I want to tell you about a new feature available on LabVine called the ConfLab. This is an opportunity for laboratory thought leaders, subject matter experts and consultants to share their expertise with other lab professionals. And you can follow the link in the show notes to apply to be a Conflab expert. Dress a Med has been designing and manufacturing high-quality scrubs since 1980. The prices are affordable, the shipping is very fast, and the scrubs have lots of pockets, which I really like. I actually have several sets of these myself. So check out Dress a Med by using the link in the show notes. You can sign up for their loyalty program for free and earn special offers and discounts. And now back to Barbara Day on the People of Pathology podcast you had intended to get into management from the beginning Mm -hmm. and you're moving up and you're moving up and now you're a laboratory director. Yes. Did you still like it at that, at that level?
1: I did. I did still like it a lot at that level. What I didn't like is, and we talked about this a little bit earlier, is the fact that you can't find staff. Mm -hmm. I think that is the biggest challenge. And, you know, when I started at my last role, we had a, years ago, they had a CLT program which was a one-year program after high school, and they became techs. So this was back in the 80s when, you know, that was, that was acceptable by ASCP. They were, they were certified by ASCP. This group of techs worked there from the time they were 18 years old. So I had techs with 45 years experience that weren't at retirement age yet, and they were great oh. techs. They were so good. They had a really good program at this hospital that I worked in, and these people never missed a temperature to be taken. Well, then they started retiring, <laughs> and there was nobody to take their places, and right. that was the biggest challenge I think for me in that role.
0: Mm-hmm. And I, it's it still is from what I hear; it, it still uh, is to this day.
1: It is. It's just it's terrible with where it where it was when I graduated to where it is now. That you can't find techs. and the and the number of schools has decreased exponentially,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know, we, we did, I used to sit on the um, advisory committee for the local community college that had an MLT program. And there was a couple of the big, you know, health systems that were there and some smaller hospitals. And we went through an exercise one day and realized that we had 71 open positions in the area and they were graduating 14 MLTs. And that was it. There was nothing Whoa. else out there. Wow. Yeah.
0: I had no idea it was that big of a gap.
1: Wow. It's a, it's a big gap. And I don't know that every place is like that. I think there's still some schools in some states, but mm. in my area, it's really, it's really bad. It's really tight. Wow.
0: Now, now these days you actually, you've gotten out of the, the clinical lab setting. I have M- more, which less. surprised
1: me because sure. I didn't think I yeah. ever would. Yeah.
0: Okay. Interesting. Because I do so like
1: then... it. I, and I still like the lab. I'm still involved in CLMA you know, I still talk to people in the lab. I just did a cap inspection a couple weeks ago. Oh, okay. Yeah, so I still am involved in the lab.
0: I see. Okay, okay. How was it that you went on to become an education specialist? You're you're in companion diagnostics.
1: Yes, I'm in companion. So I'm in pharma now. And how this happened okay. is um, a friend of mine who I went to college with, we got in touch together from Facebook. And we were we we've gone out to like lunch and dinner. Well, We went to lunch a couple years ago. And she was telling me what she did. And she was pretty big in pharma. and She did a lot with precision medicine. And she was telling me and I said, boy, that sounds like a a really interesting job. I'd love to work for you, but I'm not going to move because I'm I'm pretty set in this area. (laughs) Well, a couple weeks later, she called me and said, there's a job I think that you should apply for. So I did and I really, you know, was I, I didn't have sales experience. So it was a a hurdle I had to go past in my interviews to sell myself. And uh, I was able, you know, they did, they gave me the job. And it's a, it's a really interesting, I really like it. It's interesting. It's, it's a nice, it's a nice change. And, you know, I got terrible to say, but I accepted the job in February of 2020. And I started the job on March 24th of 2020. Oh, wow. So, yeah. Yeah, it was pretty good timing, actually. (laughs) Just when everything was starting to fall apart in the lab. And I I felt very guilty of leaving because, you know, it was just starting where we couldn't get test kits. Well, we weren't even testing yet. We couldn't get collection kits. And everything was starting to get, you know, testing to Quest Diagnostics. And it was just a very challenging time. And I feel bad that I, I left at that time, but it was not that I had planned it.
0: Right. Uh, yeah. I mean, no, nobody did, right?
1: No. Right. <laughs> All right.
0: B- before we, because I want to, I want to really dig into this area, but can we sort of d- define what, what is companion diagnostics?
1: So companion diagnostics is a test that is related to a drug. So you need the test in order to qualify for the drug basically in the in the simplest form. So a lot you see this a lot in um, cancer care. Um, I specifically work in lung cancer space. Mm-hmm. so it's things that like to get you know so you need um, a PDL1 positive in order to get a PDL one drug.
0: Okay that
1: okay, means- so that's what companion diagnostics are.
0: Okay, okay. And I think from what I was reading about this kind of the, I don't know if it was the original, but sort of the classic example is the Hercept test for breast cancer, right?
1: Yes. Yeah. Breast cancer is a really good because you do ERPR HER2 and Herceptin Mm -hmm. is for HER2. So unless you get that test, you can't qualify for that drug.
0: I see. Okay. And so you mentioned how, you know, your friend got you interested in this. What, What sort of training did you have to, Go through for this.
1: So, besides for just learning the whole pharma aspect, which is a lot different than lab, and actually even more wait wait
0: different different in what way?
1: You know, just the the whole. I I always said that there was you're so restrictive in lab. It's even more restrictive in pharma.
0: Oh, I see, yeah. like regulations. And Regulation, things.
1: yeah, regulatory. Yes. Okay. So learning that was very big. That was probably. of what I had to learn. Um, The rest of it was just really getting the knowledge of the testing itself, which although I've been a tech for a a long time, one thing I've never done is next-gen sequencing or PCR testing. So I really had to dig in to learn that. I'm very lucky that my current boss is a PhD. He was very instrumental in getting me through this to train and learn all this stuff, as well as my team, most of them have been in either sales or pharma or diagnostics for a while. So they also helped me get up to speed. And I help them learning about the lab.
0: Oh, sure. Sure. Yeah. Then this must have appealed to the sort of, like you said, professional student. Part yes, of you, it right? does.
1: Exactly. Right. Yeah. It's like, it's, you know, I get, I get paid to learn. It's great.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and this is a field that's you know, it doesn't stay the same. Like every every week or so, it seems like there's something new. So that's yes. That's I
1: mean, just different. last week there was another um, there was another lung drug approved for that has a biomarker.
0: Okay. That okay. was
1: previously undruggable, so it's big news. Oh, well, okay. And it's great for patients.
0: Yeah, that's for sure. Um, all right. So, you, like you said, you specifically you're in lung biomarkers. Yes. Now, was this? This is just what this particular company does or did you get to choose this specialty or how does, how did that work?
1: This was pretty much what this job was, but honestly the the specialty has always appealed to me only because I lost my mom to lung cancer 30 years ago. Oh. So if you can if I can stop one patient from having the reactions that she did to chemotherapy, I feel like that's a win. You know yeah. so that was it was to me, this was kind of it was. I don't know. It, it was seemed to be a little bit like fate mm-hmm. to be able to educate in this area. I don't know.
0: No, I can. I, I, I understand that. Yeah, that makes yeah. sense. Okay. Now, being that you've got the lab background, do you have? Do you, do you have a lot of interaction now with lab staff or pathologists from kind of the other side of the equation yeah. now?
1: Yes. That, so that's what I do. I really, my, my contact point is pathology, but we also talk to oncologists, nursing, techs, managers. You know, COVID has really challenged it because it's really hard to get pathologists on the phone. But um, I've, I've been able to have some really good interactions. A lot of them are with, you know, the academics that really do a great job of And I've learned so much from them. Mm-hmm. And then to the community hospitals where, you know, we can guide them to help them understand, because things change at such a rapid rate. If you're a community pathologist and you're trying to learn all of this stuff all at once, and not just lung, but breast and, and colon and, and liver and everything, I, I don't even know how they can keep up with all the guidelines.
0: Yeah. I, I've always wondered about that. Like how, w- with the way these things change and how rapidly, like I, I want, you know, how do they keep up? That,
1: that's, that's interesting. Exactly. So that's why there's a lot of my roles out there in, in pharma now to kind of educate and not really educate, but make them aware. Cause I, you know, they, they're very smart people and they know way more than I do, mm-hmm. but they, you know, this can just to make them aware of what the changes are and, you know, what what they should be looking for and how to work with the oncologist and and work together because you're you're a lab guy and, you know, sometimes Mm -hmm. lab people and clinical people don't always speak the same language.
0: Yeah, that's very true.
1: And so I guess what I'm trying to just kind of interpret to get them together to speak the same language so that the oncologist isn't frustrated with the lab and the lab doesn't really even know what they want.
0: Do you think that then then with your lab background, I I feel like you'd be better able to do that than than, you know, someone else who just doesn't have that.
1: I I think it it gives me a leg up because I can speak on their language. Mm -hmm. You know, once I get in there, it's it's easy for me to talk to them because I've talked to them for so many years. Right. So it is, you know, I have a little bit more of a common ground.
0: Yeah, yeah. It makes them probably easier to, I don't want to say trust you, but I guess maybe that is the word, tr- to trust you better because they know that you're you're one of them, really.
1: Right. Yeah, I'm one of them, exactly. And I make sure I tell them I'm one of them.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I have to think that's very useful. Now, what about, uh, you, you mentioned oncologists, too. How do, you, how do you approach them?
1: Well, usually that's at the request of, of somebody that might have a question, so then I'm brought in to help answer those questions.
0: Now, I'm curious, then, you you said you started this right at the beginning of COVID. Yes. So last last March. Yes. So this, you know, is it virtual meetings? Do you go in person to hospitals? Or how does how does that work?
1: I've been able to do both. Um, very little in person, but it's starting to open up a lot um, virtually. Okay. My team is a, we have a team of six. We've never met in person. Hmm because we have not been able to do that yet. Um, some some places are a little more open than others, so we've been able to get into some places, but I do an awful lot of virtual as well.
0: Okay. That had to be difficult kind of starting out virtually,
1: I, w- I would think. It, yeah, it was. Now it's sort of, it, it's kind of commonplace now, but it was right. really yeah. different to start out with, especially somebody like me who, I've never worked from home. I went to a job every single day of my life. Mm-hmm. And now all of a sudden I'm working from home and I'm, I'm on, you know, it's, it's self-guided and I'm trying to make appointments with people online. And it's just very, it was, it was different.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it kind of you're starting in a new field in a new, uh, in a new way at the same time. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I said I, I changed careers at 58 in the middle of a pandemic. I don't know if that was the best thing I've ever done, but hey.
0: It seems seems to have like worked out so far.
1: Yeah, it has so far.
0: Okay. So what's like a typical day then for you as, as a education specialist?
1: So my typical day is, you know, basically just how my typical day was before I read my emails. I make sure see what I, I have a plan. Um, We have sales specialists that I work with. So, you know, see where their area, I have a pretty big territory and it works because it's virtual mostly. So I kind of see where they want me to look at and I'll look at hospitals. I try to contact people, see how they're testing for lung markers and, um, you know, then do whatever else I need to do. Okay. You know, it's, 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 I'm busier than I thought I would be. You know, I, I have busy days, so it's, you know, and, and then a lot of education, again, if there's something new coming out, we do a lot of webinars, we read a lot of stuff, um, talk to my team, try to figure out what, you know, what's, what's going on, what's new, because it changes, it's rapid fire change.
0: Yeah, for sure, for sure. Mm-hmm. Do you ever have any contact with the patients?
1: No, I do not. At least not yet. I don't know if that'll ever change, but no, we don't have contact with patients.
0: Mm, I see. Okay. So we've talked about kind of throughout your career, how you're you're constantly advancing. And like you said, the the professional student thing, you're constantly trying to gain more knowledge. And this seems like in companion diagnostics, as it's constantly changing, this is a great place for you to be for those reasons. Do you, I mean, I know you're really, pretty new to this field, but how do you think it's going to evolve in the future?
1: It is the future of cancer care. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't know what the, you know, there's some talk about some other vaccines and stuff for cancer care, but it's really made, it's really done wonders for cancer patients. And I believe that it will just keep evolving because there are so many oncogenic changes on tumors that they're identifying and they're getting drugs to. So I believe it'll continue to expand. You know, how long will they need a role like ours? I hope for a long time, but mm-hmm. I don't know that.
0: It's definitely an exciting field to be in, you know, and especially at this time where it's, It is. yeah,
1: it is. It's there. like I said, it's just so many changes so quickly and there's, there's always something new. Mm-hmm. Which is interesting. But that being said, you know, I could go back to the lab as well in a minute because I did enjoy that work and I still will always enjoy that. I always said when I retire, I'm going to work casual in a blood bank.
0: Oh, okay. There you go. Mm -hmm. That's a good retirement plan. Yeah. Okay. Um, Barbara, is is there anything I haven't asked you that you wanted to mention before we wrap up?
1: I don't think so. I think that's it.
0: Okay. Okay, this has been super interesting. I, I I really appreciate you coming on the podcast and uh, and talking with me. So thank you very much.
1: And I really like your podcast; they're really interesting. Thank you for doing this. Oh,
0: thanks. I'm, I'm, that's yeah. that's great to hear.
1: Yeah, it is. It's you know you really get a whole big cross section of the laboratory, which is good.
0: Mm-hmm. That's what I try to do. Excellent. Thank you.
1: Yeah. Okay, Dennis. Thanks.
0: Great big thanks to Barbara Day. I've got a trailer for you right now of my interview with Dr. Richa Saxena.
2: I have a lot of stories, but there is one in particular that I feel deeply touched by. So this was about one student of mine, a middle-aged guy. Actually, he was here, uh, not in India. So he was a middle-aged guy with a family back home. In the career he had left to pursue his long-lost dream, becoming a physician. During his basic sciences, he failed two of his courses. Uh, including uh, mine and he was told that this his only option was to withdraw or repeat the semester Dejected he came to me and told me he was thinking of dropping out and He told me about his personal issues back home How he had a family to take care of and he couldn't waste any more resources Because he did not think he had it in him uh-huh. after long conversation I was somehow able to persuade him to continue on. And it was a difficult time for him, of course. And um, as, uh, because he was, uh, since he was a very hardworking student, he surprised everyone while doing uh, very well in both courses and even shelves this time around, the next time. And even after passing my course, he stays in touch with me and continued coming to me for support and advice.
0: You can hear more from Dr. Saxena in episode number 51. So this conversation with Barbara Day brings up a couple of very interesting points. And the first is that her experience from working in the lab made her uniquely suited to her new role in companion diagnostics. So this shows that it's not only our ability to run the tests that we run, but also the knowledge that we have that can be applied. And this is another example of using the knowledge and the skills that you acquire working in the lab and being able to apply those to other areas. And this doesn't necessarily mean you have to go out and get a completely different job. I mean, you can use those skills to expand your role within your current position in the lab. As always, I'll have links in the show notes if you'd like to learn more about the things we talked about today. You can follow this show on Twitter at People of Path or connect with me on LinkedIn, or you can just go to peopleofpathology.com. You can listen to all of the episodes there and there are links to Twitter and LinkedIn there as well. Last week, I mentioned I was going to be doing a YouTube live conversation with Dr. Alexander Zuroff and we did that, but there were some uh, technical difficulties and there was lag to the feed and you actually couldn't hear me at all, which depending on your point of view may have been a good thing. But anyway, we're going to be trying that again sometime in the next couple of weeks, hopefully. Please continue to share the show with those that you know And together, let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. This show is a member of Health Podcast Network, which connects listeners with conversations and stories about health, care, and well-being. And you can find a link in the show notes to Health Podcast Network if you'd like to check out some of their other interesting podcasts. Thank you very much for listening. And I will talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast.